Please remain standing and pray with me. Father God, we come now in Jesus' name, Lord, to handle the holy things of your word. Father God, I, I, I confess to you, I, I feel every time I stand here, I feel unworthy and, in, and ill-equipped to bear the message of the scriptures. So Lord, uphold me as the preacher of your word. Lord, I pray that um, all of you and none of me would be presented to your people. And Lord, I pray for us this morning that you would grant us open hearts and open minds and willing ears, Lord, to receive the teaching of Scripture. And Lord, please grant us that blessing of being doers of the word and not hearers only. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I think uh, you probably are noticing this around you as we go through uh, our lives in this, in this period of time we find ourselves in. We, we live in a time when there is an enormous focus on self-definition, on determining one's identity. Identity is a huge thing right now in our culture, more than it's ever been in my lifetime. Uh, identity is such a driver for us that there's even a PBS series called Finding Your Roots. I don't know, maybe you've watched that. It focuses on connecting people with their ancestry so that they can make sense of who they are. Who am I? Who are they today? And how do they fit into the world around them? So if you can make a TV show out of it, I think it's probably a pretty big deal. <laughs> identity, identity is a fundamental human concern. Uh, when we break it down, basically, this is what identity is made up of. Are you ready? First of all, it's two parts. First of all, who am I? What is my enduring self over time? Who am I in the core of my being? And the second part of identity is why do I matter? Who am I and why do I matter? In other words, a sense of self and a sense of the worth of the self. That's what identity is about. And identity seems to be driving nearly every aspect of our national conversation today. For many people, identity is defined by associating ourselves. For many of us, it is identified by associating ourselves with a particular group, or you might want to call it a particular tribe in our society. So it can be broken down into race and ethnicity, gender and sex. Evidently, those are not the same thing. Actually, guys, I got to tell you, when I was growing up, gender was a part of speech. It was, a, it was about grammar, but now it's been attached to human persons other than merely in grammatical statements. So race and ethnicity, gender and sex, how we are shaped by our inner desires and passions, whether we are urban or rural people is a part of that, that identity equation, what part of the country we are from. All of these things get thrown into the hopper in order for us to determine who we really are and how we relate to others around us and, and here's one of the things that's really a front burner issue, how we stack up, how virtuous we are in comparison with those around us as well. You might not be surprised, however, to find out that this is not a new interest, maybe not even a new obsession. St. Paul in the Philippians passage, which was on page 981 in your pew Bible, page 981, St. Paul in the Philippians passage we read this morning offers a very personal reflection on his own journey to finding his authentic identity. And here's what he finds, okay, are you ready? 
for the first part of his life, there was a way he identified himself that seemed to be perfectly reasonable and logical. And here's the thing, it was congruent. It fit in with the surrounding culture of first century Hellenistic Judaism. But that identity, that identity, his first way of identifying himself was ultimately not enough, not life-giving, even though in that first way of reckoning his identity, Paul declared himself to be a very religious person. But then something happened to Paul so that he found, that he found his authentic identity, his true identity, in another source that resulted in life and so much joy, life and such joy, that when he talks about it, it sounds a lot like how young lovers talk about being in a relationship with their beloved. And if you can't remember that, bless your heart, I can. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul says that in the beginning he drew his identity from three basic areas. And if you, we'll hear that scripture again in just a moment. But we see that he was drawing his identity from three basic areas. And here they are. You ready? His pedigree. Paul draw, draws identity from his pedigree. It's kind of like finding your roots, you know. And then he finds his identity in his politics. His pedigree and then his politics. And you guys back in the back there, you're going to have to ride, ride my gains. So if I get too loud, you just, you just ra ra roll me back in. I worry about these people. And finally, his personal achievements. So his pedigree, his politics, and his personal achievements. Yes, those alliterate. I am a preacher. They do come in a three as well. We got this. I don't care if anything else happens. This sermon just nailed it. <laughs> so each of those categories of pedigree and politics and personal achievement, these categories still matter enormously to people today. Paul drew his identity from his pedigree. Just listen to the credentials of his heritage. Ready? Paul says in verse 5 that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was a part of the covenant community, God's chosen people through that rite of circumcision. And he was of one of the two most prestigious and faithful tribes in Israel, Benjamin and Judah. Both his parents were Hebrews, one just his mama, his mama and his daddy. And the Hebrew line is, is reckoned through the woman. He nailed his pedigree. He says, I know who I am because I know who my people are. I know my, my heritage. And that's still how many of us identify ourselves today. There are still those today who claim, and by the way, if that was not the case, 23andMe and Ancestry.com would go out of business. We care about this stuff. If you're an American, you really care about it. Because nobody was keeping up with that when they got here. Right? There are those today 
who claimed their identity because of the prestige of their heritage. Their heritage brings with them the daughters of the revolution, first families of Virginia. That's a thing, y'all. My family came over on the Mayflower, someone might say. But just as powerfully, some of us know who we are because of our heritage of oppression. My family did not come over on the Mayflower. My family came over on a slave ship. But in both cases, whether it is something we want to hang our hats on with pride or something that defines the deep pain that goes down from generation to generation in our families, heritage is not sufficient. It is not enough to define us. For Paul and us, this is not a sufficient foundation for identity. Paul drew his identity also from his politics. What are you talking about? Is that in there? Yes, it is. You see, in the world of first century Judaism, uh, that, that culture in Palestine in the first century was divided into parties. And those parties had both religious and political attributes. In other words, there was the party of the zealots. The zealots. And the zealots were a religious party but they believed in the political overthrow of the Roman occupying force through means of violence. It had the force of a political party. There were also the Essenes, and we don't hear much about them in the New Testament, but that political religious party gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then within the New Testament, we also hear about the Sadducees, which was a, a high-ranking, high-status high party. And then, of course, the Pharisees, which we hear much of. Paul says that he was of the Pharisee party. The Pharisees were convinced that the very future of Israel depended on their party's precise implementation of the law of Moses. The very future of Israel depended on their party's precise implementation of the law of Moses. Now, uh, as you may know, the Talmud is a collection of, uh, the, of Jewish oral tradition, and it really begins to be set down, set down around late 200, early 300s in, in, in Israel, in the Palestine area, and then and from like the 3rd to the 6th century AD in the Babel, what's called the Babylonian Talmud. But here's the deal. Uh, all, these sayings go all the way back to those 1st century and earlier Pharisees. And so it was a uh, and to other parts of that Jewish community as well. But there was a rabbi who said, if Israel, here's how important keeping the law of Moses was for them, if all of Israel could only keep Shabbat two times consecutively, Messiah would come. That's the stakes at which the political and religious uh, party of the Pharisees held the law of Moses. It was very, very important. Similarly, today, many people are drawing their identity from politics. As people become more and more secular, in the United States at least, politics are beginning to fill the vacuum that has been left by God. In a need, it is, uh, there's a need for a transcendent purpose, for community, for a story that explains the world and has a vision for a better future. And so some are placing their hope in political parties and political candidates 
to meet those needs and to fill the void that God, the belief in God, has left. Thomas Dalrymple wrote an article in the January issue of First Things that addresses this trend. And one commentator observes, Dalrymple thinks the rising generation, listen, Dalrymple thinks the rising generation of Americans is seeking more from politics than just good laws. They are seeking salvation. They're seeking a cure for the world's evils and an escape from what feels like a meaningless existence. Having abandoned any hope that these things will come from God, they're left hitching their hopes to the next election, to the next Supreme Court ruling, or the next session of Congress. There is an evangelical tone to their declarations, Dalrymple writes, a sorting of the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the saved from the damned. They do not merely want formal changes, they demand a reform of the human heart and intend to bring it about through politics. But of course, politics can never deliver those things. And then Paul looks to his personal achievements for identity. Look at verse 6. Chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 6. Paul says, as to zeal, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. So Paul has credentials by virtue of what he has achieved. He, his identity is coming from his achievements. He was completely committed to his cause. He was actively engaged, totally sold out, and he was achieving great things as a Pharisee. He actively persecuted the church. He kept the law of Moses, he says, at least from a human sense, to the extent that he considered himself blameless. That's achievement. You know, we also turn to personal achievement, whether it is in sports. You can look at me and you can tell that that's where I'm finding my identity. <laughs> sports or education or business or personal wealth portfolio or our career, these achievements. Or maybe even we receive a sense of identity on, by a sense of righteousness based on our good works. And Paul says that he was doing that as well as a source of our identity. That happens still today. But here's the problem with all of this. An identity that is ultimately, already, are you ready? Ultimately, based on our pedigree or politics or personal achievement, it will ultimately disappoint you and crush you. It will ultimately disappoint you and crush you. Here's what I mean. Your pedigree will either leave you arrogant or embittered. If your, if your heritage is your identity, if your heritage is one of great, you know, famous ancestors, people on the roll for the uh, Daughters of the Revolution, well, you can feel a little arrogant about that. Well, my great-great-granddaddy served on the militia in Statesville, North Carolina. He was a captain of the militia. Well, that and 250 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But it can leave you either arrogant or embittered. There's a history in my heritage of oppression that has never been justly dealt with. 
or politics as identity, politics as identity, will be by necessity divisive. Politics as identity is necess necessarily divisive. It'll divide you from those who dissent from your view. By the way, you'll become more and more rigid and precise in your view. We see that right now. You will demonize your opponents, and you will, and you will excuse the atrocities of your own party. Personal achievement as identity will leave you simultaneously self-congratulatory and disillusioned if you achieve your goals. If you achieve them, you get there, you kind of like, you're almost always, it's, it is the experience you had as a, you know, a child. Now, I want to tell you all a story, some of you who are, um, are millennials, and I like the new title, Zoomers. You know, if you are a, a Generation Z, millennials and Zoomers. But if you're an old baby boomer like me, you got the Sears and Roebuck catalog and the Penny's catalog, and, and, and before Christmas, you went through that thing, and, and you brought covetousness to a high art as you looked at, you know, the whatever, you, you wanted to get that basketball goal, or you wanted to get that racetrack set, or whatever, you know, things were in that catalog. You might even go and circle that and leave it strategically placed uh, near a, a parent's uh, bedroom or something like that, so they might see that as well. And here's what happened. That was, your, that was what you wanted to achieve. You wanted to achieve the, the new Hot Wheels, you know, double loop the loop racetrack. And you got that thing, and it came in an awesome box. The box promised so much. You finally achieved it. You finally acquired it. And when you got out and you played with it a couple of times, it, it just wasn't ever as good as you hoped it would be. Your experience was, is that all? There's always that sense of, even when you achieve it, it never meets the desire you have for fulfillment. So it can leave you simultaneously self-congratulatory and disillusioned if you achieve your goals. Or it will leave you with a sense of discouragement, failure, and self-loathing if you don't achieve your dreams. If personal achievement is what's going to define you, if you never make it, we actually heard somebody read this um, as one of their questions for our bishop, and I, I, I really I heard what they were saying. I kind of have that feeling, you know, they were coming. Uh, there was a question answer time. You wrote your question down on a little card, and um, and one of the ministers had written, "What do I feel? What do I do if I feel like I've never accomplished what I was meant to achieve at the end of my ministry?" Wow, it just got real. But something changed for Paul in how he had determined his identity. These things that are ultimately crushing or disappointing were removed. Here's what happened for Paul. He fell in love. Paul fell in love. And how he writes about it sounds like someone passionately in love. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That's the way people in love talk. 
Paul found an identity that would never crush him or disappoint him or lure him into smug self-congratulation. He fell in love with Jesus Christ. Paul found his identity not in himself or his achievements, but in a relationship. He calls it the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And that word knowing, and this is so important, it's clear in the Greek. I think, you know, if um, I'm not a, a Spanish speaker, but I think there are, there are like two words that are used in Spanish to, about uh, knowing, and one is to know about something, and then there's one to know something intimately. Two words, many languages have that. We don't have that really in English. But that word knowing that we hear read in, in Philippians 3 doesn't merely mean knowing about Jesus, but rather an intimate relationship with Jesus. Kind of like the knowing that goes on in all those begetting passages in the Old Testament. And so-and-so knew his wife, and they beget. That kind of intimacy. Falling in love with Jesus has the, has the power to obliterate our other priorities of identity. I fell in love hard for a little girl named, little red-headed girl named Lisa Carter when I was in high school. And when I did everything else, sports and school and backpacking was just so much refuse compared to being with Lisa. Lisa destroyed my life balance. <laughs> you should go back and remember those things. You know, the same thing happened to Paul when he fell in love with Jesus. Do you know what he calls the things that constituted his identity before he knew Jesus? He calls them rubbish. But that's not what it says in Greek. It says scubala or scubalon. I count them scubala. And that means dung. It was, when, when Paul wrote that, it was a jarring and crude expression in Philippians. I count them excrement in comparison to intimately, intimately knowing the living God through Jesus Christ. So all our pedigree, all our moral uprightness, our public service and personal accomplishments are, in, in the comparison of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, a stinking pile of crap. And I didn't say that. Paul said that. <laughs> you see, for the follower of Jesus, authentic identity, this is critical, authentic identity is not achieved. It is received. You don't achieve your personal identity as a Christian. You receive your personal identity as a Christian. It is a gift that flows from God, and as such, our performance does not determine our identity. Just being loved by God and trusting him in return determines our identity. Paul writes in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything a loss, for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. There's that word. In order that I may, may gain Christ 
and be found in him. Here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own, not having an identity that I concocted, not a, not a set of good deeds that I have done, the, not, a, not a list of virtue signaling or, or a public uh, service in my community that gets me pats on the back and makes me feel like I'm a person of worth and value. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own. In other words, it doesn't come from me, from the law, by observing an external set of rules and regulations, but rather that which comes through faith, in other words, trusting a person, faith in Christ, the righteousness is from God, my identity, my righteousness is from God that depends on faith. And that's the source. Now, the good news about that is, since it doesn't come from me, I can never lose that. It's just gift that flows to me, and I receive that. My identity is not up to me. And you know what? That makes life a lot easier to live. When we don't have to bear the burden of constantly generating our own identity. Once you have fallen in love with someone and begun the process of knowing them, you desire only one thing from that relationship, and that is to know, know that person more and more intimately, to mingle your life with their life. The more of Jesus you and I experience, genuinely know, the more of him we experience, the more of him we will desire. And if we are not desiring more of Jesus, and I'm looking at Ben Sharp in the mirror at this moment, I realize it's because... I'm not experiencing him as I should in this moment. And that's what Paul says his goal is. Paul says he has spoken of knowing Christ as something that has taken place in his life, and yet he still cries out this, I want to know Christ. So I know Christ. It was the surpassing worth of knowing him that made everything else seem like rubbish in comparison. But now he says, what do I want to do now that I know Christ? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, koinonia, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So to know the power of the resurrection, Paul desires to know that. Why would he do that? Because the resurrection is God's power turning back the power of death and decay and evil. To know this power is to personally, personally, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Paul says that means I want to personally, not read it in a book, but read it in my life, personally experience the overthrow of the powers of evil and to live in the new reality of God's real inbreaking right this minute kingdom. That's what it means to live, to know the power of the resurrection. Paul says, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, sharing in the, the fellowship of, of sharing in his sufferings. This does not sound attractive. Why would he want to do that? Well, here's the deal. We cannot, be, we cannot be with Christ if we do not suffer with Christ. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When God allows us to suffer and we consecrate that suffering back to God, then we share an intense fellowship, intimacy with Christ. Have you been rejected by friends? Jesus was rejected by friends. Offer that up to God, and then you'll be united to Christ in that. 
Have you lost material possessions? Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. Offer that suffering up to Christ. And he will draw you into deeper fellowship with him. Jesus suffered rejection, slander, and gossip. Jesus suffered false accusation and false condemnation. Jesus suffered humiliation, physical torment, and yes, death. And we encounter similar sufferings in our lives, but when we offer them up to God as a way of saying, Lord, please use this human suffering and make me like Jesus in that moment, it gives us a it brings us deeply, deeply into the life of Christ. And there are depths of the life of Christ that you and I can, can never know unless we are willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll allow you to bring that suffering into my life. Paul says, becoming like him in his death. Christ's death unleashed the power of redemption into the universe. In giving his life freely, life, peace, Forgiveness and reconciliation poured from the cross. Because that's what happened when he gave his life like that. That's what happens when we know him and we allow that to happen in us as well. So likewise, the most intense union with Christ is when we are called to give away ourselves redemptively. Please don't let that just roll by. The most intense union we have with Christ, the greatest in intimacy we have with Jesus is when we allow ourselves to be given away redemptively. Let me tell you a story. Some of you know, have heard me tell this, but some of you haven't been here in the last three years or so, for the last three years, so you don't know this story. But it was very transformational for me. Uh, this makes me think about Lona Cates Woods when I hear this scripture. I'll give you a quick little background. Lona, there were at least two families in my first church out in the country where people still lived in log cabins. And it wasn't like, oh, let's go down to the log cabin display uh, room and purchase one of these. No, these were log cabins that somebody got out and cut the trees down and built because they didn't have anywhere to live. And then they, then they tacked on uh, asphalt shingles that looked like bricks usually. It, this was high, it's when you wanted your cabin to look good. You got rolls of shingles that looked like red bricks, and you nailed those over your log cabin. That's the way it was. And, and uh, a lot of those log, log cabins looked like places I didn't want to go to. And yet, at least two of those log cabins were people from my parish, and eventually I had to go to one. There was one log cabin that had this old man. I mean, he was old uh, to me. I know. Who, knew, who knows how old he was? Could have been 35. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, he actually was in his late 70s. Um, but but he, was, uh, he was obviously mentally disabled. And he would be, I would see him when he was out mowing the yard, and as I'm driving down the road with my, my windows down, I could hear him singing to himself. I'm not going to try to mimic it because it, it would sound disparaging. And, uh, but he always had, like, tobacco juice just all on his face, rolling down his cheeks. Ooh, ooh, it was like, I'm not going to that house. But that was where Alona Cates Wood lived, and that was her brother. And so, finally, um, the Lord convicted me, and it was until I finally went and said, Miss Cates, I should have been here six weeks ago, and I'm sorry, I just now have gotten around to come and seeing you. And she said, son, don't worry about that, come on in. Um, so I was 25 years old and was serving my first church, and she was one of the people who taught me the most about being a shepherd of souls. Lona was the most outrageously joyful Christian I have ever known, and we spent many hours laughing with one another in the living room of her cabin 
And whenever we were together, our joy in Christ seemed to burn the brighter. She prayed for me. Really, she didn't say, I'm praying for you. No, she prayed for me. Lona was a free spirit. She was as free from sin as anyone I knew, free from other people's expectations. She was free from the love of money, free from depression, and yet she had spent her life in what most people would consider slavery as she tended to one sick family member, chronically ill family member after another. For years, she nursed her bedridden father-in-law until he died, and he was not a pleasant man. And then she tended her profoundly mentally disabled son until he died of a heart attack at age 50. And then she cared for her younger brother who was similarly mentally disabled until he passed away at age 82. And then 11 months later, Lona herself passed away. But she didn't mean pass away selfishly. For the first time in years we had been given, uh, somebody gave us enough money to go up to a, a, a church camp and uh, spend a, a week at a church camp out of the camping season for a family vacation. We had never had that in the, by that time, three years or so that we had been at that little church. And, uh, and it meant everything for us to get away, but Lana was on her deathbed. And so I went to Donna and I said, Miss Cates, um, you, you have got to stay here until I get back. And you know, she said, okay, son, I will. And she did, for me and my family. She was dying, and yet she cared for other people. Her life was filled with what many would see as profound suffering, and even maybe death. Her life was a death. But Lona took all that pain, all that sacrifice, dying to her own agenda in life, and offered it up to Jesus Christ here, Lord, I give myself away for you. She was one of the greatest souls I have ever known. She knew Christ. That was her identity. And because of that, she was filled with light and life. And when she died, she did not lose her identity, her personhood, because she was not the one who kept her identity or personhood. She knew that God is more to be trusted with our identity than we ourselves. She believed this out of Colossians, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life, your identity, is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. This is the goal that Paul consciously was pressing toward with the fierce, fierce focus of an athlete. We, too, could adopt that as our goal. We cannot focus on our past failures in this effort because to do so is to go back focusing on what? ourselves. If you focus on your failures, you are focusing on you. Instead, the focus of our lives now is always straining towards knowing the other, the Lord, and growing in intimacy with him. One of the most intimate acts that human beings do together is to eat a meal at the same table. 
at this table, we feast with and we feast on Jesus Christ. I pray that this meal today will be the means that God enables us to truly know Christ. St. Bernard of Clairvaux sang this truth. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. What do you get when you get Jesus? You want more of him. We drink of thee the fountainhead and thirst our souls for thee to fill. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please stand.